Hello, I'm Ian Scullicorn of Wyndham Books, publishing the work of Ursula Bloom for a new generation of readers as part of a long overdue revival of this very talented and special writer. Over five episodes, I'm bringing you Ursula Bloom in her own words. We'll learn about her life as a young woman in the Great War, how she broke into the publishing world, her success on Fleet Street, and her achievements as a crime reporter. This is episode two. If you haven't heard episode one yet, I recommend you listen to that first. In our last episode, while Ursula's mother was convalescing after cancer treatment, and as the Great War raged, Ursula's estranged father came to Walton on the Nays to visit his family with some disturbing news. This is Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. The letter said that you and your mother spent all the time on the front watching the soldiers and disguising your real intentions by pretending to do needlework. You wrote down what you saw in an exercise book. What do you mean by disguising our intentions? Of course I write in exercise books. They're my stories, said I. He turned his blue eyes round on me, and I saw that he was distraught. They suspect you of being German spies. But but how could we be? For the first time in my life, I found myself stammering. The name, I suppose, Bloom. It sounds German. Then you came down here as soon as the war started, and you seem to have been sitting on the front ever since. When the Zeppelins came over, they said your mother tried to force her way past a special constable onto the front. But of course she didn't. There was a plane pursuing the Zepps, and she ran down the road to see if she could get a better view from the opening by the Albion Hotel. At that moment, I remembered with painful clarity that horrible night in London, when the crowd had smashed some of the shops with German names over them, and the sausages had rolled into the gutters. I remembered the story of the poor little Dachshund who had been stoned to death, and rather haltingly I said, It's... it's ridiculous. What about Jocelyn, who was fighting with the British army in France? What... what do we do? He didn't know, for he himself was bewildered by it, and only too anxious that we did not become further involved. Mother was the one who finally determined on a plan. She was always by far the stronger fighter. She would carry on as she had begun, and so make people realise how innocent was our behaviour. It sounds little today, but in that hour we were two women facing a threat which could easily be disastrous. The spy stigma was a virulent disease. It could end in arrest as a lot of other unfortunate people had already discovered. Fate came to the rescue in a dreadful way. One evening, Mother's face was ashy, her eyes had gone dark. She looked helplessly at me. It's come back, she said. Not another lump. She nodded. We went to the doctor. He said it was a small thing and could be removed with a local. There was really nothing to worry about for the next radium treatment would put it right. But we had seen the writing on the wall. And once one reads that, hope waves goodbye. This was the routine performance of this particular malady. On the day of the operation, the surgeon came downstairs and sat down to have tea with me. 
He asked if I had made any plans for my own future. I said that I had not, and he asked if I had a young man. Oh, no, I told him. He was surprised. I should have thought that any girl with your face would have had a dozen, he said. I don't like to think of you being so alone. If a young man did come along, take an old chap's advice and think seriously about him. No one will come along, I ventured. You never know. He finished his tea and then went to the waiting car. The last thing he said was, Don't forget that if a young man did come along, it might be the answer. I heard from Monty. He was passing through London, expecting to be sent immediately out to India. Would I meet him at Charing Cross by the bookstall? On the spur of the moment, I wired that I would and caught the next train. He was still good-looking, kindly and gentle, and looking much better in a second lieutenant's uniform than in that bulky fustian outfit which the privates wore. We met like strangers, unsure of each other. We talked of London, of everybody being in uniform, and all the time there was a certain strained atmosphere that made itself felt. We lunched on shoddier food than previously, though we paid more for it, and we talked about the old times, avoiding the personal side. I was embarrassed that I was not more distressed to find how far apart we had gone. Monty must have realised this, for he said, You and I would never have made a go of it. No, I suppose we shouldn't have done. I explained I wanted to get home before dark so I should have to catch the afternoon train back. I saw him off at Victoria. It was dreadful that now I did not even love him. I waved as the train chugged out, and I did hope that he would be safe. But all the time I knew that the prayer I prayed was only the one I would have prayed for a stranger, not for the man I wanted to marry. I hoped he would go to India and stay there out of harm's way. It didn't matter if we never met again. Arthur Denham Cooks of the 24th Londons, the Queen's, was a fair young man with grey-green eyes, not very tall, but with that blarney stone charm that his Irish mother had given him. We first met at the adjutant's dinner party. He was extremely good-looking, and on all occasions was pushed to the front when entertainment was indicated. He was to sing and asked for an accompanist, so I volunteered. He seemed doubtful of my ability, and later when I had done it, apologised for showing the doubt, asking if in return Mother and I would dine with him that week at the Albion Hotel where he was billeted. I said no, she said yes. So we went. Arthur was twenty-four and I sympathised with his deformed left hand which frequently made him shy, for he was secretly bitterly ashamed of it. He was rich, something to which I was unused. Within the week he took me to the regimental dance. He told me about his mother. His father's death had shattered her nerves. Privately, he thought she was just a trifle dotty. She'd love to meet you, he said. You must come up to London and meet her. It was arranged that Mother and I would go to London for lunch. Then something went wrong. Arthur telephoned home to make final arrangements with his mother, and apparently she was in a rage. Lunch was off. 
Much later in the year, I knew that Arthur had told his mother he wanted to marry me and was bringing me round, and she'd gone through the ceiling. It was an expensive ceiling, too, at number six Prince's Gate. Who was I? How dare I? I must be an adventuress, and I must be low. Mother had seen in Arthur the security for the future of an adored daughter. One cannot blame her. She had recognized his attraction, and now something had happened to upset everything. We shall never see him round here again, said Mother. She was wrong. Arthur came most nights. He had a habit of drinking neat whiskey, which was a dreadful tax on our resources, and he was the only man I'd ever seen do this. Doesn't it taste awful? I asked him. Sure, and it does. But afterwards you feel like a giant. Nothing matters at all, at all. He was slight, very thin, rather frail if he had spoken the truth about himself, and I don't suppose he often felt like a giant. On the morning of a hot 11th of May, Arthur came round. Are you and Mummy doing anything this evening? Absolutely nothing. Why? I want to have a talk with Mummy. What about? Ask no questions and you'll be told no flibbity-gibbets. No, honest as they come, I want to talk to Mummy. If I come in after dinner, will that be all right? I'll tell her. And I want no infants hanging around. Meaning me? Meaning you, he said and laughed. Then off he went again. He had not even had a drink. Arthur had considerable charm, but was a changeable personality, at moments gauche, at others warmly amusing. His gaiety was infectious and a tonic to me. But suddenly, I was afraid of him. That evening, Mother came into the dining room looking utterly delighted, which she had not looked for months now. The change in her spurred me on. He wants to speak to you, darling, then impulsively. Ursula, I'm so happy, so very, very happy. I am just so happy. Arthur was sitting on the sofa looking radiant too, his face flushed, his eyes grey-green and dancing. I suppose you know what this is all about, he asked. I'm not sure. I'd be an awfully nice little fellow to marry. He began to giggle. <laughs> what do you think happened when I told Ma about it? I should think she had a fit. Being engaged to Arthur was unbelievable. The whole world changed, and he himself was amusing in his joy. He rushed the announcements into the papers before Ma started to make a fuss, or the Germans landed, or something ridiculous happened. He got sudden leave, which the colonel did not want to give him, and dashed up to London, having one car accident at Romford and another in Chelmsford on the return journey. He bought a sapphire and diamond engagement ring and a bracelet to go with it, a string of pearls and a small gold mesh bag, highly fashionable at the time, little realising that I had not two and eightpence in the world to put inside it. Whatever happens, he must never know how hard up we are, Mother explained. Of course not. A week later, I went with him to pay my first visit to Prince's Gate. 
As we entered the big hall, Mrs. Denham Cooks was coming down the stairs, and she was one of the most beautiful women that I have ever seen. Both of us were nervous. We talked banalities. Where had I been to school? I hadn't. When did I come out? I never had. When was I presented? With the same answer. My future sister-in-law sat by, and I could not eat my tea. We left early, Arthur red with rage. But she's seen me, surely that's something. Did she say anything to you about me? Only that you had very beautiful eyes. We arranged to marry in the November. I was to get a suitable house. Arthur's instructions being that it must be better than the Colonel's and to hell with the cost. I engaged a cook, a parlour-maid, a housemaid, a tweeny. Arthur's batman would help, and his old man-servant who was in the regiment would come to us as butler. Then he insisted that I must have a personal maid because Ma had one. So I made all the preparations to become rich. We were to be married at Frinton Church. Mother and I were being flung into multitudinous expenses that we could not afford, yet determined to give the right impression. I went to the local pawn shop and pawned the little silver brushes and boxes which I had collected from childhood. With the money I went to kind old Mr. Barker at the Marine Hotel and explained that I wanted to pay for the party myself and he was to tell Mother only when she came to pay the day after tomorrow. He was very sweet. He looked at me with gentle eyes. I think he guessed how poor I was, but he said nothing. The wedding day was dense with fog and melancholy with foghorns coming from the sea. My father arrived at eleven in considerable agitation because his suit had been put by for some years and growing stouter he could not imagine how he would kneel without splitting the trousers. What would the Denham cook say if this crisis arose? I felt ill. I had a few days ago had a bad attack of influenza, and having got over the worst, we hoped, the doctor suggested I should be buoyed up with brandy. I have never been an ambitious tippler, and by midday I was in an inebriated daze. In this daze I drove over to Frinton, where it seemed the whole of the British army were lining the street. The tiny church was already full as I tottered into it. In the end, it passed off reasonably, and there was only one agonizing moment when I had an appalling crack beside me and thought my father's trousers had gone bang. It was really the best man who had been nothing but a nuisance from the first and dropped his prayer book. I left the church not realizing that none of my new in-laws intended to honor the reception, but returned at once to London. Later that day, Arthur and I and the lady's maid went down to Bournemouth, which Ma had insisted was the only place for a respectable honeymoon, and as we had only a very brief leave, we returned the next morning and dined that night at a small dinner party at Prince's Gate. Ma did not attend it, and I rather wished my sister-in-law had kept away, for she was no help to me. Just when I was breaking down, the kind old butler offered me a pudding and lowered his head close over me. Don't pay any attention to any of them, he whispered. 
It's England in the first part of the 20th century. The Walker sisters are different from each other in every way, but they'll stick together for life. Isabel is the dutiful one who always puts the needs of others first, but can she find happiness for herself? Lillian is the pretty one who uses her beauty to get her own way. Will it bring her what she wants most of all? And Joyce is the independent one who dreams of being an artist. Does the love of her life, though, feel the same way about her? The sisters choose very different paths in their search for happiness and fulfilment, but through the ups and downs of love, men and marriage, they discover the strength of family ties. Three Sisters by Ursula Bloom is published by Wyndham Books and is available as an e-book exclusively from Amazon. Search for Three Sisters by Ursula Bloom and read the moving and unforgettable story of the three Walker sisters. The only consoling note was from Jocelyn. Earlier in the year, I had sent him certificates to apply for compassionate leave to come and see Mother. I dared not tell her of this, in case it was refused. Now it had been accepted, and he was already on his way. He would be back by December. When I approached Arthur about this, he agreed to our putting Jocelyn up, for he was in a jovial mood, but within the week some idiot in the mess said to him, So, now you've got all the family hanging round your neck, haven't you? That started trouble. There was no doubt about it, he had a violent temper, and the first time I saw him go white with rage and throw a decanter across the room, I very nearly collapsed. I'd never known that people could behave like that, and when he recovered a trifle I said so. But darling nincompoop, that's nothing, said he. One of my ancestors strangled his valet in a rage. A grandsire shot a footman. We're nice little fellows when you get to know us. He did not understand that a new diamond brooch did not settle a scene of that sort, and felt that I was unreasonable. Jocelyn came. I left him alone with Mother to say goodbye, and later I went to her. She was sitting very still by a dusty fire, and beyond the windows a fog rolled in from the sea. Far away was the boom of an exploding mine. She looked at me, her face ashy. I shall never see Jocelyn again, she said. I could not deny it. I knew it was the truth, and it made me quite sick. Just after the wedding, a captain of the 23rds had said to Arthur, didn't you marry that girl they thought was a spy? He had knocked the captain down, only to find that he was senior to himself, and there had been a frightful row. I was embarrassed, for Arthur now wanted to unearth the whole of a scandal which I wanted to leave buried. He had made inquiries and had found that two of his subalterns had been billeted at a certain house in Walton, where the landlady had repeated the story. He now intended to force an issue. If you get a feeble enough mouse, it squeaks, he told me. That's what I'm going to do. Then I'm coming down with the law. Public apology everywhere and sweep the path clean. Both the subs were to dine with us, and I was apprehensive. It was an amiable enough dinner, and before we had gone very far, I realized that the wine was flowing a good deal faster than the young men could take it. Arthur never turned a hair with wine. 
I'd found that out early in our marriage, so he was entirely in command of a situation where they were already in deep water. He steered the conversation to that nice old lady where they had been billeted. They told him what she had said as something of a jolly good joke, and how he laughed. Well versed in cross-examination, he led them on and over the coffee with butler and parlourmaid gone, how they floundered into the trap. Then Arthur changed. Now, said he, you two will sign statements. I, I, I beg your pardon, sir, said the senior sub. I'm writing down what you heard the old lady say, and you are signing it. They argued. They said she was quite a nice old auntie, rather a fool, of course, but she didn't mean a thing. And anyway, this would be jolly hard on her. I was stone silent. It's a jolly sight harder on my wife, said Arthur. You chaps will sign on the dotted line. It's a command. I'm damned if I see why, said one. If you are talking to me, kindly address me as sir, Arthur rapped out. I presume you two were not lying about all this? If so, then I shall sue you. You may have repeated it to others. Somebody is going to suffer for this. It is you or the old lady. Which is it to be? They signed. I was cold with horror. I felt it was hardly cricket. To get them here to break bread with us, to give them a surfeit of wine which Arthur knew was intoxicating, and then when they were bewildered to make them sign, seemed like hitting a man below the belt. Oh, damn your eyes, shut up, said Arthur. I wasn't used to that form of address. It had never been used to me before, and I hung back a little dazed. Next morning, the local solicitor called on Miss Brannan, who immediately denied having said anything. He showed her the paper which the unhappy subalterns had signed, and she burst into tears. She signed a statement admitting her guilt, which to her horror was published in all our papers, and most of the London ones, and she had to pay for it. When I heard this, I was furious. It's mean, I said. Clear my name by all means, but don't make her pay. You can't realise what being hard up is, and if she does have to pay, let me send her the money. From that day to this, no one has ever accused me of being a German spy. On a January evening, Mother returned from deep X-ray treatment. She had a bad cold and went straight to bed, and I said I would go back after supper. We went, for I had something to tell her, something of which I was suddenly shy, and I was embarrassed and wanting to hold back. I was going to have a child in the autumn, yet when I got to her, I could not tell her. Arthur was the one who did it. Mother looked at me. Then she said, You go downstairs, Arthur, and let me see after her. Then when he had gone, however you feel about it now, this is going to be the best thing that has ever happened to us. You're happy with him, aren't you? Then perhaps because she guessed something. No, don't tell me. I'm happy, I said. The next day she was not so well. The doctor arranged for her to be moved into a home where she could be nursed. Arthur had come into lunch in trouble. He looked dreadfully ill, 
and could not speak until he had had a couple of drinks. Then he told me, I've got to go to London. I'm in a hell of a trouble. What's happened? Not the colonel again. Ugh, the silly old whatnot. He poured out another drink. If this goes wrong, I might lose a pip. Look here, Mummy is ill. She's had to go into a nursing home. I can't help that. I shall want you with me. You'll have to come. But, Mummy... For the first time, I saw him look changed, different and rather frightening. I'll make you come, he said. I went to see the doctor about Mother, but he did not seem unduly perturbed. I sat with her most of the day. She seemed vague, rather frail, and she slept a lot. I was deeply worried about her. On the Sunday, her voice had become far away, and although I begged Arthur to let me stay with her, he refused. I suppose he was afraid for himself. I did not know the circumstances which were surrounding him, and when I rang up the doctor, he let me down lightly. I did not realize that he did it because I had the baby coming, meaning it well, but he should never have done it. I kissed her good night and left her at nine with the night nurse. They woke me before it was daylight. She was dead. We went to Prince's Gate. I could not be admitted. The difficulty was that I was pregnant, and my mother-in-law said that it would be improper for the butler to see me. I had to sit outside in the taxi, where an ancient maidservant brought me milk and cake, whilst Arthur and Mrs. Denham Cooks had one of their more tempestuous rows within. They were the most extraordinary family, having quarrels the like of which I hope never to see again. Once I saw Arthur rush up the stairs flourishing a loaded colt, ready to shoot his mother, but they came out of them on a fairly even keel in the long run. Arthur was to get a job in the Ministry of Pensions. It was, he said airily, merely the job of sitting by a waste paper basket as far as he could make out, and if he went into a coma, he would just flop into the waste paper basket, so that would worry no one. I believe that we had rounded a difficult corner in that the ministry job would last till the war ended, and Arthur would be safe there. The war was drifting along with no sign of peace in sight. Arthur was having constant comas, I still believing that they were some strange kind of faint, and terrified to let him out of my sight for a moment. It would be worse when the monthly nurse joined up with the family, and things had to be explained or covered in some way or other. But better when the baby came— Surely the baby would put everything right. I brought an eleven and a half pound baby into the world, a boy. He wept real tears. He had red hair. He was exactly like my own father, something that I had never expected, and all his fingernails were very long and had to be cut. Arthur said nothing. He passed out in quite the worst fainting fit of his life. Coming to, Arthur gave five pounds to each of the servants, then went off to the West End, buying gold charms for the nurse who collected them, and a bowler hat for the baby, which he thought would be jolly useful later on. I got nothing. There was no comment from Prince's Gate. Mrs. Denham Cooks had been so sure that I should have a girl, and now that we had got the boy Arthur most wanted, she was indignant.
Unfortunately, wines and spirits were becoming very scarce, and Arthur was again at that stage when whisky was a vital necessity to him. People became well aware of his need. They knew that he was reputed to be free with his money and relied on this, bringing a bottle round at a fancy price. Mysterious bottles arrived in his study, sometimes hidden in odd places, and I once found one in the lavatory system. An original little fellow when you get to know me, said Arthur. We were right back where we had begun. It was an illness, one to which the doctors were in those days severely indifferent. One turned helplessly for help and got none. One day a tragedy would happen. I began to see its shadow ahead of me and did not know what to do to avert it. That summer, Arthur's college friend, Herman Rogers Tilston, a doctor, came down to stay with us. Arthur's very ill, you know, Herman told me one day. I know, but what can we do? Very little, I'm afraid. I thought you ought to know. In the summer, Spanish flu had been about, but it did not come our way. Early in October, with the war approaching its end, the front page of the Times became alarming. We were accustomed to shocking casualty lists, but the death columns were now enormous and crammed with the names of young people who had died here in England. Their ages seemed always to be between eighteen and thirty-two. It was the baby's little nursemaid, Woolly, who contracted it first. By morning, the cook had developed it. The doctor took a serious view of her condition. He stood in the hall, fingering his hat. This is a most unpleasant form of influenza, he said. It runs through a house and there is nothing that we can do to stop it. When we said goodbye on the step, he apologised for being so depressed. He had been up all night and had seen four young people die during that night, two of whom he had brought into the world. I have the feeling that this wretched thing never goes through a house without leaving a corpse behind it he said. I wished we had not talked. Arthur, on the other hand, did not care. He thought that the doctor was a fool anyway and did not believe a word he said. Arthur had always been casual over death. It did not frighten him. His idea was that, as we all had to die some time, what was the good of bothering? If on October the 4th Germany proposed an armistice, we hardly noticed that this even happened. It seemed amazing that we had waited for this moment for four agonizing years. Yet when it came, we had got past concerning ourselves with it, for the epidemic was increasing at such a speed that we could think of nothing else. Arthur became ill. When the doctor came, I hoped that he would say that Arthur's was just a bad cold, but he didn't. From that moment, things became difficult. All through that day, restlessness disturbed Arthur. It was midnight when he started a hemorrhage. We could get no nurses. The military police came for short shifts, and an old man once an orderly at Netley Hospital. I stayed with Arthur, lest the strangers made him afraid. At the end of three days, I think I had forgotten how one slept. My mother-in-law refused to take any message, though in the end I got the doctor to speak to her. Then Herman arrived. He walked into the house one dreary morning when I was at the end of my tether and dizzy for the want of sleep. The war's ending, 
It may even be over now, said Herman. He was terribly good to me, very kind. He gave me brandy, and for the first time in my life I did not recoil from it, for the simple reason that I hardly tasted it. That night, Arthur died. After the funeral, I went with Herman to Norwich to stay for a week. He told me that Austria had accepted the unconditional peace, that the Kaiser had abdicated and had fled, nobody knew where. Peace was coming. I got up next day feeling very ill indeed. The paper said that ten million had died in this war, and probably another twenty million had died through the events the war had caused. I dressed slowly. I wore a black dress with widow's bands at the wrist and the bonnet with weeds. My mother-in-law had not communicated with me since Arthur had died, but the old butler had come down to the funeral and had been kindness itself. I walked out into the street that chilly November day. A soldier's funeral was coming down the road, with a Union Jack flung over the shallow coffin, as once a Jack had been flung across a cart trundling up the high street at Walton to a similar destination. Could that have been only four years ago? At that moment a maroon exploded somewhere in the city. Oh, not another air raid, I gasped to myself. It could be nothing else, surely. I never knew that it was the armistice. The paper had the headline, Germany Surrenders. The leading article was headed, A Glorious End. It was over, wasn't it? This episode of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, was adapted from Ursula's autobiography, Youth at the Gate, available from Amazon in paperback and as an e-book. It was edited and produced by me, Ian Skillicorn, for Wyndham Audio. Ursula's words are read by Lisa Armitage. To listen to the rest of this series, subscribe to Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a positive review. It will really help us to spread the word. Find out more about the life of Ursula Bloom and where to buy her books from the official website, ursulabloom.com. Join me again for episode three of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words.